you guys this morning. And it's very nice to have a tall pulpit. <laughs> very appreciative of that. Um, I, did, I did go to Africa for a, a year after I graduated from seminary, and it was kind of amazing how you never knew what kind of pulpit you were going to have. Uh, and often there was no pulpit or a very limited pulpit, and it was usually very, very short, and so I felt very hunched over and like a giant pulpit. So this is a joy right here. Uh, as, as was mentioned, and by the providence of the Lord, we are going to be in Psalm 119 this morning. Um, just as Brandon did not read the whole psalm for scripture reading, we're also not going to work through the whole psalm this morning for our message. So you'll still be able to have lunch today. Um, though, with the topic, uh, maybe that kind of affliction would be for our good, as the psalmist will uh, we'll find out, we'll say. Uh, so you can open your Bibles to Psalm 119. As you know, this week was kind of an interesting week uh, in Florida, especially kind of on the East Coast, as Hurricane Dorian made its way up the coast. Eventually, we found out what, what track it was going to take. Uh, it ended up mostly passing us by, but there was a, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of talk about this storm, where it was going to go, uh, what its effects were going to be. Um, and hurricanes are always interesting. They're interesting on, on multiple levels. Uh, there's, there's the news becomes predominantly focused on this hurricane. They try to come up with any and every story possible um, so that they can have viewers who, who watch the news to find out what's going on with the storm. It's also interesting because everyone on Facebook, if you log on there, you find becomes an expert at weather. Um, they, they like to share opinions, talk about wind speed, millibars. Uh, I don't really know what all those things mean. Um, but everyone you find becomes a, a sudden expert and has an expert opinion to share on where they believe the storm is going and what's going to happen with it. But this storm was, was kind of uh, a new one for me. Um, it was unique in, in the track that it took um, and unique in its, its slowness um, in approach. So there, were, there was a lot of talk about Hurricane Dorian coming to Florida um, and, and that talk lasted and lasted and lasted and the storm slowed down and got slower and slower eventually stalling out and so all of us especially in, in Florida and on the East Coast were, were, were just waiting what's going to happen where, where is this thing going to go there, there's all this activity that's been put into preparation and now we're, we're waiting and eating all of our hurricane snacks it's always a problem <laughs> but it was also interesting to hear some of the, the responses to this this uncertainty to this storm. Uh, one sentiment that I heard several times was, can we just get it over with? Uh, hurricane or not, bring it on, let's just get it past here and move on with life. We, we don't like the waiting. We're ready for something to actually happen. Uh, and that was a sentiment that I, that I heard multiple times um, this week. Another sentiment that wasn't unique to this storm itself, but you hear often in storms like this, in response to hurricanes is, I hope it won't come here. I hope it won't come to where uh, we live. Um, and especially, you, you begin to see pictures of the destruction caused in other parts of the world, and, and certainly we train from Bahamas um, and the, the destruction there. You see those pictures and you think, uh, there's a certain sense of relief. Um, it, it didn't come here. We, we didn't have to deal with the consequences of a storm of, of that, that, that power, of that nature, and the destruction that it, it, it wreaks on, on, on land or, or on a community uh, when it does finally impact um, a certain location. 
And it's interesting to think about what's, what's behind that. Uh, there's certainly a good gratitude that we can have to the Lord that the storm did not come to, to in our case, Jacksonville or West Palm Beach or wherever else that they thought it was going to go. We can be grateful to the Lord that he, he protected from that type of damage and destruction. But we probably have to admit that when we voice that sentiment, uh, there, there is an element there uh, of just not wanting to deal with inconvenience, not wanting to deal with difficulty. We don't, we don't like difficulty. Uh, again, you see the pictures of, of the destruction, and people's lives have been totally changed, totally transformed in a, in a moment, in a day. And you think, well, I'm really glad that I didn't have to deal with, with something that hard. Um, I, I'm content to, to move on with my life, uh, to continue on living life as I have been without having to deal with those type of repercussions. But we don't like difficulty. We don't like adversity. We don't like affliction. And that's a natural response. We don't like these hard and difficult things that come into our lives. That sentiment sometimes transfers over, perhaps often transfers over to our lives, our spiritual lives as believers. But when we come to Scripture, what we quickly find is that uh, there's something very different there. Uh, it's not an avoidance of difficulty, but there's almost an expectation of difficulty. Affliction and adversity are presented as a normal part of a believer's life. We know we live in a, a sin-cursed world, and so there are the effects of sin that are common to man. We all face trials. We all face adversity. We all face affliction. Consider James chapter 1, verse 2. It says, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. When you encounter various trials. This is an expectation. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. But the Bible goes actually even further than that. It not only tells us that affliction is a normal part of a believer's life, but it also commands us to rejoice in our suffering. It commands us, as James said, to consider it joy when you encounter various trials. Or, as Paul says in Romans 5, we are to boast in our suffering. We are to exult in our suffering. Again, that, that's certainly not our natural response. But this is what Scripture commands us to do. And so as we, as we look at the adversity that comes into our lives, and as we hear what Scripture commands us to do in response to difficulty and trials and affliction, we ask the question, why? Why should we rejoice? Why should we be grateful and to consider it joy when these difficult things come into our lives? And as you search through scripture, you find that we are called to rejoice. The believer can rejoice because of what the Lord is using that affliction for. Scripture affirms that affliction is ordered by a good God for our spiritual good. God in his, his infinite love, his infinite mercy, we find uses affliction in our lives to mature us. This is really the, the amazing reality of scripture. Uh, the amazing reality of what it presents in regards to the difficulties that we face. Again, consider what James goes on to say in James 1. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know 
that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Paul in Romans 5, very similar. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Hebrews 12, 10, uh, so much biblical data on this topic. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. This is the view that the Bible presents to us. This is the view that God's word gives to God's people. I think you have this quote in your notes, but it sums up well what we've been talking about already. Quote by one of my professors says, Our good and gracious God skillfully but lovingly employs affliction and adversity, pressure and pain, trials and tribulations as crucial instruments in his process of maturing those who belong to him. That sums it up well. This is the, the good, good instrumentation of God in our lives to mature his children, to mature his people. Again, this is a radical view of difficulty. It's a radical view of affliction. Again, it's, it's a totally opposed to our natural, fleshly response. But understanding the Bible's perspective of affliction, it's so helpful. It's something that we need to consider. It's something that we, we need to study. It helps us recalibrate our thinking about the affliction we've experienced in the past. Think back into your life to, to think of the difficulties that you faced. And as a believer, you can look back and see what the Lord has done with that in your life. It, it strengthens us in the midst of present affliction. The difficulty that you're going through today, we'll see, is not unknown to God. And it's part of his plan to mature you. It also prepares us for future affliction, for future difficulty, whatever the Lord would see fit to bring in our future. It also equips us to assist others, to minister to others, to counsel and comfort others who are experiencing affliction in their lives. I obviously don't know all the circumstances of your lives or the church here in Gainesville, but the Bible's perspective that we'll look at this morning doesn't leave any of us out. We all need to be recalibrated in our thinking when it comes to affliction. We all need this shepherding for our hearts. And specifically, we need to be reminded of the goodness of God, his infinite love, his infinite mercy, again, his goodness. We need to be reminded of that as we think about the trials that we face. So our text this morning is Psalm 119, and we'll look at the, the Tate stanza, verses 65 through 72. Psalm 119, as you know, is the longest psalm in the book of Psalms. It's uh, one of the longest sections of scripture that, that goes all together, longer than even the New Testament epistles. And it is a, an acrostic psalm, meaning that each stanza lines up with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And, and each verse then in that stanza begins with that letter of the alphabet. And so it's arranged in this way that would have helped uh, Lord's people to even recall it to mind, to, to memorize it, to, to, to store it up in their hearts, as he says earlier in the psalm so they would not sin against God. They'd be able to remember it all the more. And if you know anything about Psalm 119, it is a psalm about the Word of God. 
It is a psalm that extols the word of God over and over again. In almost every verse, the psalmist talks about the word of God and uses various words to describe the word of God. But as you work your way through, you find that it's also a psalm very much that describes and shows to us a, a mature disciple. There are hints, there are clues, there are descriptions of the, the psalmist's life. And we find that he is a, a mature disciple of the Lord. And you find all the more that his maturity had been forged in the fires of affliction. And so in the midst of this amazing psalm, he, he dives into all of these topics and, and puts them all together. You'll see in the psalm God's goodness. You'll see God's word. You'll see affliction. And he, he brings all of these topics together into the psalm and shepherds our hearts and how we think about affliction as believers. Listen as I read our text. Verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. This morning, as we look at Psalm 119, these verses 65 through 72, we'll see that the psalmist models three responses to affliction to highlight the goodness of God in our affliction. We'll see three responses that highlight the goodness of God in our affliction. And the first one is this, the first response. Review the goodness of God in all your past affliction. Review the goodness of God in all your past affliction. Notice where the psalmist begins. He begins with an eye to the past. He says in verse 65, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. This is a profound statement. When he says, you have dealt well, he's, he's really saying there, you have done good. You did good. And, and he's speaking there to the Lord. And so as he looks back and reviews his interaction with the Lord, or the Lord's interaction with him, he, he gives an appraisal of it. He gives an evaluation of it. And he says, Lord, all, all of your dealings with me are characterized by good. You have dealt well with me. Notice there are, are no uh, exceptions that he puts in here. Uh, there are no qualifications. There is no doubt in his mind. As he reviews his life, again, this is his evaluation. God has always done good. Everything that has come before in the psalmist's life falls under this category of, of God's good dealing. Notice that he calls himself God's servant. He has a, a proper humility as he approaches the Lord. He understands that he is the slave, that God is the master, that he is at God's disposal to do with whatever he would judge to be right and best. He uses the, the Lord's special name here. And you see the Lord there is all caps. This is the, the name Yahweh. Uh, the Lord's self-existence, that he is a, a covenant-keeping God. Again, he is the master, showing even his greatness over the psalmist who is but a slave. 
And he says that you have dealt well, Lord, according to your word. You have done well according to your word. Another translation translates this in this way. It says that you have dealt well according to your promise. The Lord, in his word, promised to act in a certain way. He promised to be, uh, to be good and to deal well with his people. And the psalmist has seen God fulfill his word over and over and over. In a word, he sees that God is faithful. He sees that God always does what he promises, that God always acts in a way that is consistent with who he has revealed himself to be in his word. This is an amazing declaration of God's character, and it, it provides an amazing perspective on life. Again, this is true across the board. This is a comprehensive statement. Every circumstance of life, the psalmist says, is governed by this reality. It has all been good. Charles Spurgeon always has something, something good to say about most of the texts of Scripture. He says this about this text. It is something that God has dealt at all with such insignificant and undeserving beings as we are. And it is far more that he has dealt well with us. And so well, so wondrously well. He hath done all things well. The, the rule has no exception. In providence and in grace, in giving prosperity and in sending adversity. And everything Jehovah hath dealt well with us. This is the testimony of the psalmist's life. This is the testimony of our life as well. Of course, undergirding this is a robust belief in the, the sovereignty of God. When we say God's sovereignty, we simply mean that he controls all things. He is uh, in charge. He, he rules over all. <clears throat> Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Nothing happens outside of his control. Nothing happens apart from his control. And in his sovereignty, we find that he is always working things out for good, again, in accordance with his word, as he has promised. Now, we find this testimony here from the psalmist, but this is really true, you find, throughout Scripture. And there are many examples that you could look at. Uh, consider the story of Joseph uh, in the end of Genesis. Joseph, of course, was the, the favorite son of his father Jacob. He... Uh, caused his brothers to be jealous of him. They, they decided to dispose of him, sent him into slavery in Egypt, where he was falsely accused, thrown in prison, forgotten. But then God raised him up. Uh, God raised him to second in command, and God used him to really save his people by, by storing up food for the seven years of famine that were coming. And at the end of that story, Joseph affirms this reality. What you meant for evil... God meant for good. The greatest example we could look at, the sufferings of our Savior, of Jesus Christ himself. Going to the cross of Christ, an, an evil act on the heart of mankind to put him to death. And yet, Peter testifies in Acts 2, 22-24, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. The very salvation came as God worked out good through the evil intentions of man. This is all through 
scripture. God is sovereign over all, and he's always working everything out for good. And so the psalmist is right to proclaim, you have dealt well with your servant. This is so helpful for us. If you think about your, your circumstances now, as you can say that nothing is outside of God's good and, and sovereign control. And so we have to ask ourselves, do, do we believe that? This is what the Lord says. Do we believe that? Do we say with the psalmist, do we look back and say, Lord, you, you have dealt well with me. I've seen your faithfulness. I've seen your goodness throughout my life. Or do we doubt his goodness? Do we charge God with, with any wrongdoing? Do we grumble? Do we complain against what he has brought? Look back at the text for a moment. I want you to notice that, again, there are no qualifications here. And so look at what the psalmist does not do. He simply states, you have dealt well with your servant. There's a proneness on our hearts to evaluate the goodness of God to us in comparison to other people on a horizontal level. It's easy to look at other people and to think, they don't suffer in the same way that I do. Their life is easier. They seem to have everything going well for them. Is God really good to me? But again, notice this, the psalmist doesn't make any of those qualifications. He doesn't look horizontally at all. At no point in this psalm does he say, well, I see this other psalmist is actually doing better than I am. He says, no, you, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. He's evaluating it vertically. And we're so prone to look horizontally and to compare our lives and, and the, the suffering that we perhaps go through and see what others perhaps don't go through. And we begin to think wrongly, to question God's goodness, question God's sovereignty. There's a quote here, it's a little bit longer. I'll just read part of it. By J.R. Miller, he says, The fact remains, the place in which we find ourselves is the very place in which the Master desires us to live our life. There is no haphazard in God's world. God leads every one of his children by the right way. He knows where and under what influences each particular life will ripen best. <coughs> he places us amid the circumstances and experiences in which our life will grow and ripen the best. The peculiar trials to which we are each subjected is the exact discipline we each need to bring out the beauties and graces of true spiritual character in us. We are in the right school. We may think that we will ripen more quickly and a more easy and luxurious life, but God knows what is best for us. He makes no mistakes. As the psalmist says, you have dealt well with me, O Lord, according to your word. In light of this appraisal, the psalmist moves in verse 66 to a prayer. He says, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. It's a simple prayer, teach me. It's not a new request for the psalmist. Throughout this psalm, you find him over and over again responding to the Lord with this request. Teach me. Instruct me. I desire to learn. And specifically here, he asks that the Lord would teach him good judgment and knowledge. Knowledge refers to content. He wants to know more of God, more of God's word. The word for judgment there could also be translated taste. The judgment kind of gets to the, the right idea, is asking for spiritual sense, or, or spiritual dis discernment and discrimination. 
who wants the ability to, to judge between what is right and wrong, to, to know God's word and to be able to apply it to life in a way that would cause him to pursue what is good and to forsake what is evil, to be spiritually discerning. Uh, these are connected here, these, these two verses. He looks at God's good dealings and says, Lord, your good dealings are not a license for me to live however I want. Your, your goodness toward me is not meant to then let me be free to pursue anything that I want to pursue in life. The mature, the maturing disciple realizes that God's good dealings are meant to cultivate in him a desire to be pleasing to the Lord. We, we read this earlier, actually. Look at verse 17 of Psalm 119. He said there, Deal bountifully with your servants, that I may live and keep your word. That's his prayer. And then move back to verse 65 and 66. You have dealt well with your servants, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. God's good dealings are meant to be responded to with our pursuit of obedience with him. And so the, the psalmist cries out in prayer that God would give him this instruction. As we move into verse 67, still under this idea of God's good dealings in, in every way, in all of his past affliction, he, he brings back this topic of affliction. He says, well, what about the difficulties of my life? Is, is God still good? Has God still been good in the midst of those difficulties? And his answer is an astounding and strong yes. And he gives the testimony of his own life to prove it. Verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. So he gives two time periods here. There's before and there's a now. Before, he says, I went astray. I was strained. My life was characterized by uh, going astray from the commands of God. In other words, his life was characterized by sin. Now, this isn't the normal word for sin here. It's not, it's not high-handed rebellion against God. It's not transgressing uh, the commands of God very volitionally with, with great awareness in what you're doing. We find in Leviticus and Numbers that this word is, is translated more in the sense of unintentional sin, uh, of sin of, of ignorance, of, of unawareness. But even though his, he, he perhaps was unaware of these sins, of these strains, they were still sinful, and he acknowledges that. His awareness of sin is not what made it sinful. It's God's standard which defined what is sinful. And so his life was characterized by these strains, and, and what exposed that, what brought that to light, and what allowed the correction that he, he even says there in the second part of the verse of keeping God's word, of obeying God's word, what, what brought those two things together was his affliction. His affliction. He's pointing out here that, that God, as we've said, uses affliction in a believer's life. And he uses it here as a, as a correction, as a way of correcting his people, of exposing the sinful tendencies and proclivities that remain, and then propelling us toward greater obedience and greater, greater faithfulness to the word of God. This is the testimony of his life. And again, he's pointing out here that, that God's good dealings extend even to his affliction. And he says, look at how God has used affliction in my life. 
He's exposed my sin, and he has propelled me toward obedience. So kind of the Lord to use affliction in this way. We all have sin that remains. We all uh, have sins in, uh, which we, we don't even know, as he's saying here, are still um, perhaps very evident in our lives. And he says here that the goodness of the Lord extends into his life in such a way that God uses affliction to show it to him so that he can forsake it and put it behind him and be kept in obedience. Other examples of this in scripture, and uh, just a few came to mind. Um, I'm thinking about what, what kinds of things does this expose about our hearts? Obviously, there's a, a wide gamut of uh, of sinful tendencies, of sins that we would engage in, that the Lord would use affliction to expose. We'll flip over to 2 Corinthians. We'll see an example of this in the, the life of Paul. 2 Corinthians. Start in chapter 1. Perhaps one of the most predominant sins that the Lord would use affliction to expose in our hearts would be the, the sin of pride, the sin of self-reliance. We are a proud people. Um, we are often self-reliant. We need look no further than our, our prayer lives to see our pride, to see our self-reliance. We are prone to trust in our own strength. Paul's testimony in chapter 1 here shows that the Lord would use affliction to expose that and to create and develop and cultivate a greater dependence on God. Look at chapter 1, verse 8 of 2 Corinthians. Paul writes here, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul is under intense pressure here. For, for Paul, you think about Paul's testimony, the testimony of his life and all that he endured, for Paul, the apostle, to say that we were burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself, you know this is serious pressure. Verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Why did the Lord allow this? To make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Dependency toward, or temptation toward, self-reliance. And Paul says, yes, we experience this affliction, but look how the Lord has used it to expose that. And to cultivate, again, this greater dependence on him. <coughs> the Lord uses affliction to expose our hearts in this way. And to allow us to pursue obedience all the more. His first response was to review the goodness of God in all of your past affliction. Let's move to the next section. The psalmist moves from the past to his present. In verse 60, verses 68 to 70, we find the second response to affliction. And that is this. Rely on the goodness of God in the midst of your affliction. Rely on the goodness of God in the midst of your affliction. Verses 68 to 70. The psalmist writes, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. 
He brings us into some of the circumstances of his life. In verse 69, he says, there's this other group of people, and he, he calls them here the insolent, or your translation might say the arrogant. He's talked about these people before in the psalm. If you look at verse 21, he says, you rebuke the insolent, accursed ones, who wander from your commandments. These are a group of men who are opposed to God, who, who care nothing for obedience to God. In verse 51, he indicated that these, these men were deriding him, they were mocking him, they were scorning him, uh, they were um, coming against him in opposition. And here we find in verse 69 that they are smearing him with lies. Another version says they, they forged a lie against me. But smear here is very picturesque. They are, they are smearing him with, a, with perhaps, you can think of a paintbrush, smearing him with paint, plastering him with lies. They're coming up with falsehoods and, and accusing him of these things in an effort to ruin his reputation, to ruin him. It makes me think of uh, Daniel here, the famous story of Daniel and, and the lion's den. Um, Daniel, the other leaders uh, were, were jealous of Daniel's position. They wanted to have him removed. They, they sought to destroy him, but they could find nothing in his character to attack. And so they had to come up with a, a new law that outlawed the righteous things that Daniel was doing in order to have him thrown into the lion's den. It's a similar vein of, of what's going on here with the psalmist. This group of men are smearing him with lies. This is difficult circumstances. He's enduring affliction. He's enduring persecution. He shows what's driving this in verse 70. He says their heart is unfeeling like fat. It's not uh, perhaps a, a phrase that you use often in your uh, daily conversation. You might want to incorporate that one a little bit more. I'm feeling like fat. Um, uh, you can maybe say literally fat like fat uh, from, from the Hebrew. Um, but what he's getting at there is there's an insensitivity. Uh, there's a hardness, a callousness that characterizes their hearts. They, they, they are bringing falsehood against them, and they care nothing. They, they have no pangs of conscience. They, they care nothing for the law of God. Uh, they are content in their unrighteousness. These are the circumstances that he is in. Notice how he responds. Notice in the midst of his affliction, in the midst of his difficulty, what he focuses on. Verse 68. <coughs> you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Again, verse 69 says, the insolent smear me with lies. They're bringing these falsehoods against me. They're lying about me. But with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Verse 70, their heart is unfeeling like fat. They have no thought to God's word. But the psalmist says, I delight in your law. The psalmist, in response <coughs> to his affliction, to his persecution, directs his attention to consider the Lord consider the goodness of God. He proclaims God's own goodness in verse 68. You are good and do good. God is good in and of himself. This is a profound statement of his character. He also says that God does good. The actions of God flow from who he is. Because he is good, all that he does is good, even as he began this stanza. And so he focuses his attention on God. He once again asks the Lord. He, he cries out with a prayer, teach me your statutes. 
And then we see in verses 69 and 70 that he directs his attention to the word of God. And there's a, a tendency here in our hearts. If you put yourself in the place of the, the psalmist, when somebody is bringing lies against you, when they are slandering you, when you are unjustly being persecuted, our hearts rise up. We want to see justice. We want to see the, the wrongs righted. Uh, we want to be um, defended, and we want to defend ourselves from unjust accusations. Uh, the psalmist has no thought right here. He says, this is coming against me. This is difficult, but my, my thought, my perception, my focus is on the goodness of my God. I am relying on God's goodness in the midst of affliction. And practically, what that looked like, what it looked like for him to rely on God's goodness, it meant that he, again, poured himself into a study of God's word, that he set himself to obey God's word, that he found satisfaction in God's law. In a way here, he exemplifies what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 4.12. Peter writes there, Therefore, let those who suffer, according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He has entrusted himself to the Lord. It's not fair what they're doing against him, but he says, Lord, that's up to you to determine. If you look down in verse 78, he addresses them again. He cries out to the Lord, let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. It is unjust. It is wrong what they're doing. He's entrusting himself to the Lord. He directs his attention to the goodness of God, and he finds the goodness of God in the word of God. Again, the end of verse 78. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. He's relying on God's word. So the first response was to review the goodness of God in your past affliction. The second was to rely upon the goodness of God in the midst of your present affliction. Third and finally, as he wraps this stanza up, the third response is to rejoice in the good benefits produced by God through your affliction. Rejoice in the good benefits produced by God through your affliction. Verse 71 and 72 he writes, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Both of those verses actually begin with the, the same words. It would sound like, it is good for me. And verse 72 also begins with, it is good for me. It's repetitive. It's, it's, it's really catching your ear. And it's all the more amazing and perhaps uncomfortable for us as he sees what he says is good for him. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Again, this, this theme continues. It is good for me that I was afflicted. This is uncomfortable for us. We are often willing to endure difficulty and affliction. But again, this is far more than just enduring. This is far more than just acceptance. This is what we looked at at the beginning what James commands, to consider joy. He is rejoicing. He is exultant in the affliction that he has received because the Lord has used it for his spiritual advancement. It's good for me that I was afflicted, verse 71, that I might learn your statutes. And notice, too, 
Verse 66, he cried out, teach me good judgment and knowledge. And verse 68, he cried out to the Lord, teach me your statutes. And now he says, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Amazingly, this is part of God's answer to his prayer. He's cried out for instruction, and he has been instructed through the affliction that the Lord has brought. The statutes that he desired to learn have been taught to him through affliction. The Lord has used it for his spiritual maturity. Verse 72, we find another benefit. It has refined his priorities. It has refined his priorities. It says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. He makes a comparison here. Take the, the largest sum of money, the largest amount of riches that you can possibly think, put it on a scale next to um, the law of God's mouth with God's word, and the psalmist says, it's, it's no comparison. The law of your mouth is better to me, it is far better to me than this, this mountain of wealth. That's temporal God's word is lasting. It is enduring. And he says, it is of the greatest value to me. This is my priority. He prizes God's word. It is precious to him. This is what affliction has done in his life. This is what the Lord has used affliction to to cultivate in him. Divine education. And a valuing of God's word far more than anything else that the world has to offer. Offer. Matthew 6, Jesus said this, 619 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you prize God's word? Do you know its value? Is it precious to you? When you look at the difficulty that you've gone through, do you see how the Lord has used it to instruct you, to give you the divine education that you need to to let you learn his word, his statutes, his enduring and lasting revelation to us? These are the benefits that the psalmist points out. And again, he's rejoicing in these things. He says, Lord, thank you for the amazing reality of what you have accomplished in my life through the difficulty that you have brought through this affliction. Rejoicing in his spiritual advancement. The psalmist had these three responses to affliction. He reviewed the goodness of God in all of his life. God is sovereign. God has always been faithful. He was relying on God's goodness in the midst of his affliction, he had entrusted himself to the Lord, even as Christ had entrusted himself to the Lord in going to the cross, as Peter would point out in 1 Peter. And he's rejoicing in the sanctifying effects of affliction that the Lord has sovereignly and, and so kindly worked out in his life through what he has brought. This is such a helpful example for us. Such helpful instruction. As we get to look at this psalmist's life, we don't know who he was exactly, but we see his testimony here. Testifying to the goodness of God, to the reality of of what God uses affliction for. We can take his example and we can apply it to our own 
lives to our own hearts. When we, when, when we encounter affliction, may this be our response. So that in the end, we can say with him, verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at the reality of what we've seen in this text. We marvel at your goodness, Lord, uh, to know that you are good, that you do good, that you have always dealt well with your people. Pray that we would confess any doubts that we have about your goodness, that we would believe the testimony of your word and what you have revealed to us about yourself, even in how you use the difficulties of life to show us your goodness and to work out our own sanctification. Pray that when we encounter difficulty, we would entrust ourselves to you, that we would be reliant upon you, and that we would enjoy these great benefits that you bring through them. May we consider them all joy. And so put you and your glory and your goodness on display for those around us so that we can marvel and say, how can we respond in this way? It all points to your glory. It all points to the reality of, of what you have accomplished in our lives. And Lord, that is our desire as your servants. Our desire is that we would be pleasing to you, that you would receive glory from our lives in whatever way you determine is best. So thank you for this text. May it shepherds our hearts. May we respond throughout today, throughout this week, and the rest of our lives with obedience and worship to you. We pray this in your name.